Welcome to Let It Bopate at Large. I'm Let It Bopate. New York Times columnist Tom Friedman called for a green version of the New Deal to get carbon emissions under control almost 14 years ago in January 2007. In February 2019, Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Senator Ed Markey introduced a resolution setting forth goals and details for a Green New Deal. With record-breaking wildfires in the western U.S. and a hurricane season that's now forced to use Greek letters for names, the catastrophic potential of runaway climate change is becoming painfully clear, and yet President Trump and others contend that the costs of addressing climate change would be impossibly high, nearly $100 trillion. How can we finance a comprehensive effort to drastically reduce our dependence on fossil fuels? Well, Cornell Law Professor Robert C. Hockett studies financial law and economics and has advised Representative Ocasio-Cortez on the Green New Deal, a subject that he examines in detail in his new book called Financing a Green New Deal, A Plan of Action and Renewal. It's published by Paul Gray McMillan, and I'm very pleased that it brings Professor Hockett to our show now. Welcome. Oh, hey, Leonard. It's such a joy to be with you. I've been a long-term fan and uh, just delighted to be able to chat with you about this. Well, I've read the book and I'm excited about talking about it with you. You say that the, the question that's always asked is, how are you going to pay for it? But before we get to the issues of financing, what are the essentials of the Green New Deal? Well, I mean, the thing about the Green New Deal that is really worth, I think, kind of highlighting is what distinguishes it from previous environmental movements uh, or environmental preservation efforts. Um, And that, I think, which most distinguishes it is its kind of affirmative or sort of proactive nature, right? It's much less about thou shalt not than it is about let's do this, right? In other words, rather than simply talking about prohibiting these these technologies or these forms of emission or whatever, not that we're necessarily against any of that, we're really more about how to replace what we currently have and what we currently do uh, with more environmentally friendly technologies um, and, and methodologies um, or modalities of, of production, right? And the cool thing about this is that really most of the most cutting edge new technologies and new industries are themselves green friendly in this way. So in a certain sense, we're really talking about simply revamping the economy by modernizing it with all state-of-the-art equipment, all state-of-the-art technologies, and again, state-of-the-art productive uh, modalities, uh, which will actually have the effect of sort of automatically greenifying uh, the the earth uh, while we're at it. You see what I mean? Well, what specifics were set forth in the resolution that AOC and Markey introduced in 2019? Because haven't there been a number of proposals for applying economic tools to address climate change in the past, like carbon taxes and emissions trading? Uh, what would a, a Green New Deal go beyond those? Oh, way, way, way beyond. And indeed, it's it's precisely the ways in which the Green New Deal goes beyond those that makes it different, right? That sets it apart. So again, we don't necessarily, you know, mean to repudiate or malign or in any way express, you know, kind of negative feelings about or negative attitudes toward any of those past proposals. Um, our guess is that some of them are probably quite good and maybe some are not so good. Um, but in effect, what we're talking is industrial policy, right? A kind of a revival of something that we used to do very well in this country and that a number of other developed jurisdictions continue to, to do well, having learned it actually from us in the first place. And, and that is actively to foster the development of and the rapid scaling up of 
new industries that are themselves eco-friendly. You see what I mean? So that's the sense in which we're talking about affirmatively revitalizing by largely essentially renovating our essential infrastructures and industrial modalities, which itself then has the effect of, in effect, automatically greenifying the, the, the economy and, of course, the planet. Well, in the 1930s, the country was in a state of economic collapse. Are we in a state of green collapse or environmental collapse now? How does a Green New Deal compare to FDR's New Deal in the 1930s? Great question. Great question. So the answer is really both, right? I mean, we are in a kind of green collapse, but we also, as it happens, are in an economic collapse and have been in a, a rather long-term secular stagnation uh, as well, even before uh, the COVID pandemic, right? And that's where the green, that's where the New Deal sort of aspect of the Green New Deal comes in, right? And that's that's the sort of tip-off or the signal that what we're talking about is essentially infrastructural and industrial revitalization, right? We are a backward economy as far as infrastructure and, again, industrial modalities are concerned. We're no longer state-of-the-art. We're way behind our peer nations. We didn't used to be that way. We didn't used to be the kind of country that could fall behind in that way because you know, one way to think about this is, you know, we've made a mistake at some point in the last 50 or 60 years. We got the idea that development, quote-unquote, is a sort of one-off, you know, a switch-on affair. You know, at one point you're undeveloped and then you become developed. Um, the way we look at development is it's a constant process, or as the great poet Bob Dylan once said, you're not busy being born is busy dying, right? Basically, you want to be continuously revitalizing your economy. If we had been doing that over the last 50 or 60 years, we would be much greener already, because the point is that actually state-of-the-art technologies just are already automatically green friendly. You know, new technologies are not kerosene lamps and they're not coal-fired plants and they're not, of course, you know, automobiles uh, without catalytic converters. So, um, you know, if you, if, you, if you keep up to date with technology itself, then you basically, in effect, have the means of assuring planetary survival already. And so in our view, the kind of economic backwardness and the anti-planetary aspects of our economic system are sort of of a piece. They come together. And so curing those problems only requires one measure. Now, wasn't there an issue of how to finance the New Deal in the 1930s, uh, which led to strong opposition? And don't some conservatives still argue that it was a mistake? Yeah, so some conservatives do argue that that was a mistake, but they are themselves mistaken. Uh, and they're mistaken <laughs> Right. It did save the country's economy. Uh, and didn't it revive demand? Oh, it did. I mean, the thing is, you know, there, there are two things, basically, that, that took us out of the Great Depression. And it's intriguing that both of them, what they both had in common was significant federal deficit spending, but in productive ways. Right. So the first, of course, was the New Deal itself. And then the second uh, was the ramp up for the Second World War. Um, defeating Nazism, I think everybody agreed, was pretty important. Um, and I think you could basically say that defeating climate change is of equal, if not greater, importance today. But again, the, the real point here is that in both cases, what we're talking about is public investment. Now, public investment always involves expenditure and also, of course, then involves public borrowing. But we never ask the question about whether it's too much about investment and unless we ask also what the investment is on or for, right? If we're investing in potato chips, maybe it's not a good investment, and then maybe it's good to focus on the expense. 
But if the investment is on things that generate greater returns than the money that's actually invested in the first place, that is by definition good investment. And I don't think anybody would argue, um, at least anybody who actually pays attention to the matter, would argue that the New Deal was a bad investment or even that the Second World War was a bad investment. Um, and I don't think anybody could seriously argue today that a, a comprehensive national redevelopment effort would be a bad investment. You write that the Green New Deal will comprise a portfolio of mitigation and renewal projects, what are known mm -hmm. as project fields. Uh, can you yes. explain that? Or are there some project fields that are particularly important, uh, like yes. transportation or replacing fossil fuel uh, generation? Yeah. So um, if, if anybody goes back to look at the Green New Deal resolution itself, uh, much of which is recapitulated in the first chapter of the book, um, they'll see that there are 14 basic project fields that we worked out in developing the resolution. Uh, and they're all sort of discussed at some length in the white paper that I put out about, oh, I think, the day after the resolution was made public. Um, so and all of them we regard as being very important. So among them are, of course, yes, a transportation revamp. Note that that can be sort of disaggregated into ground transportation, air transportation, rail transportation. All, uh, uh, I, I suppose you could include water uh, transportation as well. Also water systems, uh, power generation systems and power transmission systems. Um, building use, building codes, including public housing, but also private sector uh, buildings uh, that are used for productive activities or for administrative or office type work or any kind of, you know, again, private sector commercial real estate. All of this stuff um, is in need of significant revamp. And what we're talking about is essentially a concerted national effort to do this in a manner that is well-coordinated and coherent so that you don't have the left hand not knowing what the right hand is doing and, and vice versa. Uh, and it is a, essentially aimed at producing more in the way of returns than is actually spent into the actual you know, projects themselves, right? So that, how, how many of the project fields involve changing how we supply and use energy? Um, well, several of them at least, right? Including the one that's focused on energy itself, right? Mm -hmm. and, and the key here is again, note that there's, you know, notwithstanding a lot of the, the sort of, um, uh, I guess, the invective that we heard from the right uh, immediately after the introduction of the resolution, we're not talking about going around and saying, thou shalt not use this, thou shalt not use that. What we're talking about is basically making it possible for the green friendly energy transmission and generation methods to become more economical, more cost effective than the green unfriendly methods that we use now. You do that and then basically everybody voluntarily moves in that other direction. And that's why we tend to talk more in terms of carrots than sticks. It's not because we're necessarily against sticks. It's not because we want to repudiate or dis those who have focused on sticks in the past, it's just that we think what's been missing and what's far more important than the sticks are precisely the carrots. And we think we can do that. And we can do that in a way that's entirely cost effective. One of the technologies that uh, uh, Americans have in effect abandoned and is uh, often objected to from the left is uh, the use of nuclear in the form of, well, in this case, small modular nuclear reactors. Mm -hmm. will, will, will new technologies be needed to? Well, I mean, the, 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 whether they're needed or not, the, maybe the most important point is that they're, they're here and they're coming along and they're scaling up. At this point, as you know, China is the world's largest user 
and exporter of photovoltaic technologies. Now, the thing, the real kicker for us, what really is galling, at least to us Green New Dealers, is that that technology was invented here in the U.S. <clears throat> and if of we course. had a problem, right, and if we had had a proper industrial policy in the way that we used to have in the days of Alexander Hamilton and um, uh, his immediate followers, uh, including, um, um, oh gosh, the, the, the Albert Gallatin. Uh, and other sort of early Treasury secretaries in this country. And, of course, in the days uh, of the New Deal itself, we would have kept that technology a classic American sort of uh, technology, or at least something that we were ahead of the rest of the world on when it came to using and when it came to exporting. But what we've effectively done is given that away. We've given that advantage away to China. And there are lots of other new green-friendly technologies coming online and currently scaling up that are of the same character, i.e. invented here, now being exploited elsewhere to great effect. So our view is that, you know, again, we don't want to categorically rule out anything like nuclear or what have you. Our concern is that we have simply given up on or given over to other competing peer nations technologies that nobody finds objectionable and yet that we're not really using in the way that we could, especially given, again, that we invented that stuff in the first place. So by doing nothing, the United States is risking losing the race with China or the EU. Um, we go ahead. Sorry. Well, yeah, you, you can't stand still here, right? This is sort of another variation on, on, on the great poet Bob Dylan's line about, you know, you're not busy being born is busy dying. You can't stand still. And the idea that development is a kind of off and then on sort of thing, like what you've developed, you're done. Uh, is it really encourages that kind of stasis, right? That kind of running in place or just sort of, you know, running on a treadmill while everybody else is passing you by. Um, and, and note that we don't even have to think of this purely in competitive terms. We could think of it in global cooperative terms, but it's kind of hard to do that at the moment when we have to import the stuff that we invented from countries that purport to be competing with us. It's kind of galling, again, uh, and it's unnecessary. And again, it's also unnecessarily planet harming. Well, we recently did a show about how better farming practices that are promoted by uh, the Paris uh, Climate Accord, for example, would capture mm -hmm. carbon from the atmosphere uh, mm -hmm. to simply stop doing things like tilling the soil. Uh, mm -hmm. But the US mm -hmm. actually, the US government actually um, gives money to farmers who do that uh, if they're mm -hmm. producing stuff, uh, well, for, for, for cattle feed and things. So mm -hmm. the, uh, the United States, do, do American businesses need support from the U.S. government to develop green technologies? Well, we certainly think it would be a good idea to provide that support. And that's, again, the sense in which we're talking carrots rather than sticks here. And, and when I say carrots, furthermore, note that I don't mean just like tax incentives or little rewards or little, you know, kind of piddling subsidies. I mean, massive national investment, national, a massive national expenditure to aid in the development and scaling up of these very industries, right? And it's probably worth noting that this will bring tens of, if not scores of millions of new high paying jobs of the kind that used to be characteristic of the American middle class back before we started deindustrializing in a big way back in the 1960s. So one way to think about what we're advocating is reindustrializing, you know, back to being a kind of a world-class producer um, uh, of, of, of stuff, but doing it in a manner that is actually in the nature of world improvement, right? Rather than world using or, or using up, you know, or burning. 
Um, so yes, uh, this also, by the way, highlights another important piece of the Green New Deal, which is again this kind of coordination effort. So I've, I've recently been, lately, I've been proposing, and of course, as you notice in the book, I propose uh, essentially you know, something we can call a national reconstruction and development council or a national investment council. Mm-hmm. It's essentially a kind of FSOC for development. Effectively, what you would do would be to combine all cabinet level, all the, the heads of all cabinet level agencies in the country into one council. All cabinet level agencies have jurisdiction over infrastructure and industry of various kinds into one council to get on the same page when it comes to mapping out and then regularly updating what I call a national development strategy. This would be a kind of counterpart of what the Department of Defense does every year with the National Defense Posture Statement. Every year they put it out, every year they update it, uh, and we need to do the same thing in order to have a coherent national strategy and also to keep departments from operating at cross purposes with one another, right? So if the Department of Agriculture is on the one hand subsidizing farmers for doing earth-destroying things, Mm -hmm. while at the same time the Department of Transportation is hoping to make our transportation infrastructure more eco-friendly, that's kind of incoherent, right? And indeed sort of self-undermining. And so we really need, I think, a coherent policy planning body that is democratically accountable because, of course, as we know, all the cabinet heads are chosen by an elected president with the advice and consent of an elected Senate then I think we stand some chance of sort of thinking and planning coherently. And that's why that's one of the things that I uh, emphasize uh, in the book. And again, this is classic Green New Deal style thinking, which in a way is a revival of New Deal style thinking, because this is essentially what the New Deal did as well. It brought the cabinet officials together and made a coherent national project of national reconstruction and development that's why the primary financing arm of the green of the original New Deal was called the Reconstruction Finance Corporation. It's also, by the way, why the World Bank at the end of the Second World War got the official name, the International Bank for Reconstruction and Development. Um, what we're talking about now is national reconstruction and development right here at home because we've gone 60 years, um, uh, through 60 years of, of just steady degradation of our infrastructural and industrial base. Robert C. Hockett is our guest on today's Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. His book, Financing the Green New Deal, A Plan of Action and Renewal, published by Palgrave Macmillan. Uh, is there a challenge in financing a Green New Deal that would not arise in financing an infrastructure project like a new tunnel under the Hudson River? Is this a matter of scale or, or just philosophy or politics? I think it's, 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 it's sort of partly a matter of all three or each of those three, I think, Leonard. I mean, first of all, um, scale is actually helpful um, if we're talking about more than just one project, in other words. Um, and there are a couple of reasons for that. For one thing, there are the usual economists uh, or the usual sort of economies of scale that come with scale, which, of course, are familiar uh, even to orthodox economists. Um, but in addition, there's something to be said, I think, for the psychological effect of making something into a national mission. People and you argue that, I'm sorry for interrupting, but along these lines, you argue that going big on a Green New Deal might be more affordable than smaller piecemeal initiatives. Precisely, precisely. Uh, and again, there are multiple reasons for saying that, right? 
But one of the reasons is, again, the scale economy's reason that I mentioned before. Another of the reasons is the psychological reason that I was mentioning a moment ago about when you make a national project of something, people kind of put their shoulders to the wheel. A third reason is that, again, if you make it a big, comprehensive project that essentially deals with multiple sectors at once, you get synergistic effects, right? You get the synergies of working on a complex portfolio rather than just sort of one project at a time. And you also get past some of the politics that way because it no longer looks like you're benefiting one locality or district at the possible expense of other localities or other districts. And indeed, this highlights another aspect of the Green New Deal as sort of laid out and, and, the, and the plan is laid out in the book, which is that, you know, we're not only talking about acting across sectors of the economy as sort of represented by distinct cabinet level agencies of the federal government, but we're also talking about basically optimally um, coordinating multiple levels of government and, of course, public and private sectors alike, too. And to start with the former of those, because this goes directly to your question as well, um, if you think about it, you know, local governments, state governments, county governments, and the federal government all have their own specific advantages. And this is one reason we have a federal system. Localities, are, of course, are much better at identifying specific needs on the ground in their areas. States are kind of similarly well positioned to determine needs within the state borders uh, and likewise in coordinating the needs of their various localities and so forth. The federal government in general, including the federal agencies that constitute it, are okay at that kind of thing, but that's not their comparative advantage. What their comparative advantage is, is funding, right? Because cities and states have much less in the way of options when it comes to funding. So in our view, the optimal sort of fiscal federalism here will be a case where the federal government, through its distinct agencies, are coordinating with state officials and city officials in determining what the portfolio projects is going to be, and then directing the federal funding accordingly. That's kind of how the New Deal itself worked. There was a New Deal project in literally every congressional district of the country. So nobody had to feel like they were losing out, right, to the, the better lobbied for localities next door or in other states. The New Deal never became identified with just one region of the country or one state or city of the country. And we're really big on that, too. And indeed, one of the things that we're still doing right now is something uh, that I've dubbed essentially the Green New Deal wish list product or project. And the idea here is you have city councils and town councils all over the country develop lists, basically menus of priorities of what they would most like to see done if there were suddenly federal funding available to them to do it. It's almost like saying, make your little wish list for Santa Claus, because Santa Claus, in the form of the federal government, is going to be directing lots of funding toward revitalizing and revamping infrastructures and industrial technologies and modalities come January. So get yourselves ready. Get your lists ready. We're going to collate them into great big books, or what Mitt Romney might call binders, but the, these are going to be you know, binders full of projects, right? And, 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 and get this thing, um, you know, so we have the shovel-ready projects, to use Mr. Obama's phrase, the shovel-ready projects ready uh, when we hit the ground uh, in, in January, and we will have thought this stuff through in advance. And again, we can coordinate all of these or collate all of these distinct project needs uh, to sort of put together, again, a coherent uh, and internally consistent portfolio. But considering the polarization in this country, uh, some mm -hmm. uh, some locales might disagree with others. Mm -hmm. 
would, wouldn't this be logistically a very difficult thing to put together? Uh, you have some very conservative areas and some very liberal areas and everything yeah. in between. Yeah. So that's true. Um, but again, our thought is that when it comes to infrastructure and uh, jobs and industry, probably all districts uh, would like to see more of that. They might differ on what they would like most to see within their district. And that's fine. We can let a thousand flowers bloom, um, so to speak, and let distinct congressional districts essentially register distinct priorities when it comes to where this funding is going to flow or what projects are going to be funded. Um, again, that's how the New Deal itself worked. The country was quite polarized during that period, too, um, but it still worked out. And what was interesting is a lot of people who had initially opposed FDR, when they came to realize that he was acting in good faith and the New Deal wasn't just going to be benefiting Democratic districts, but was going to benefit every district, ended up becoming great, you know, great fans of FDR, which is one reason that his re-elections he won by much larger margins than his initial election. We expect the same thing will happen here. There's another lesson, by the way, or a recent lesson, I think, or at least a, a kind of a hint or an indicator in what happened with Obamacare, right? So you'll recall that Obamacare itself gave states the option to receive more federal assistance or aid or funding um, for expansion of the Medicare roles. And most democratically oriented states signed on. A lot of Republican states signed on and some Republican states held out for ideological reasons, notwithstanding the fact that that meant foregoing funding. Well, it didn't take long before the populations, even in those areas of the country, voted out their ideological leaders who were just basically refusing federal funding because they thought, well, we need that funding, too. Uh, and so before long, old Mr. Bernanke's idea that there's no there aren't any there's, there aren't any ideology, I'm sorry, ideologists in foxholes uh, sort of came true. Right. When it comes to actual investment in actual materially beneficial public investment, people begin to start forgetting the ideology uh, when they see the actual material benefits coming their way. And well, we in, the, in the case of Obamacare, of course, the ideology has been ignored totally because I think the idea started with the Heritage Foundation, a very conservative group, mm -hmm. and it was Romney Care in Massachusetts yep. before uh, the Democrats mm -hmm. picked it up and then the Republicans opposed mm -hmm. it. Yep. And what's ironic is we, you know, we have a sort of a similar, we have a counterpart or an analog uh, to that very factor here. So while the Green New Deal itself wasn't as a whole sort of initially proposed by uh, a moderate Republican governor of a northeastern state in the way that Obamacare was, it does have other elements in its pedigree that sound that, that sound in Republicanism as much as they sound in Democratism, if I can put it that way. So, for example, you know, massive infrastructural renewal. That's not a purely Democratic cause celeb. Indeed, Marco Rubio down from Florida has been putting out really interesting and important work on national infrastructural revitalization. Of course, he won't use the phrase Green New Deal in that connection because it's toxic among Republicans. But if you look at the substance of what he wants to do, it's identical to what we're talking about. Similarly, a lot of what Mr. Biden talks about under the rubric of building back better is entirely uh, in sync with what we're talking about under the rubric of the Green New Deal, even to the point where I'd be happy to use language proposed by Senator Rubio or by Vice President Biden in naming what we propose. I'm not wedded to the phrase Green New Deal. I don't think any of us are. 
Um, but basically, if you look at the substance underlying it, there's a great deal of convergence between people who are nominally Republicans and nominally Democrats here. Because, again, we're really talking about massive reindustrialization when you get right down to it. And the green part kind of takes care of itself. As long as you're going state of the art, you are by definition already going green. So, you know, we emphasize the green for those who care most about greenness. But we emphasize the New Deal uh, for those who care most about the New Deal uh, and the industrialization and reindustrialization uh, and revitalization of infrastructure for those who are on that. It, I, I'll be candid with you also, by the way, Leonard, when Mr. Trump was promising massive infrastructure investment before the 2016 uh, election uh, and then on the night that he won and gave that you know, remarkably concessionary uh, or conciliatory, I should say, sort of victory speech on that night of Election Day 2016 and talked about public and private, massive public and private investment in infrastructure, I actually literally shed some tears because I thought maybe he actually means it and maybe we're not, gonna, <laughs> you, know, you know, and of course nothing's happened there, right? But I had some hope there because he seemed to care about that. He, he at least talked a good game and, and being sort of nominally a builder, I thought, well, maybe he means that, right? Yeah, um, he's dropped it. The, yeah. the U.S. controls the dollar in a way that individual European companies don't control the euro. And the dollar is an international reserve currency. Does that give the United States any advantages in financing a Green New Deal? It certainly does. Yeah. I mean, the, the fact that the dollar is essentially an international reserve currency means that we have a luxury that very few other countries, if any, have. And that is that when need be, we can deficit spend to much greater amounts right, than other countries can. Now, again, if you're doing that deficit spending in unproductive ways, like just giving tax cuts away to people at the top of the distribution who aren't then reinvesting that in productive ways or in ways that sort of uh, grow the productive potential of the country, then at some point you'll run out of that so-called fiscal space, even if that's, at that point is very far distant. Um, but if you're, if you're actually spending that, um, I'm sorry, investing those monies productively, then there's just no end in sight to how much we can do, right? Now, I don't, in saying that, want to suggest that other countries don't likewise have plenty of uh, latitude when it comes to reinvestment uh, in more productive ways of doing things and in less earth-destructive ways of doing things. But I do mean, in answering your question directly, to say that, yeah, the U.S. without question has much more latitude in this respect than any other country has. So this would not require changes in the taxation? No, there's no need, there's no reason to think that it would. Now, it might be well advised to do that, right? There are lots of reasons to change our tax code in various ways, right? So for one thing, the way the tax code is currently configured, it actually systematically advantages companies that outsource production off of U.S. shores and disadvantages U.S. companies that want to produce here domestically. Our tax code basically really ought to tax access to our market rather than what it currently taxes. Um, it also, I think, really encourages a vast maldistribution of wealth. Uh, and it furthermore encourages a great deal more misdirection of surplus funds to Wall Street speculation than it does to actual productive investment. And in all of those respects, I think our tax code is in need of a drastic revamp. Um, but all of that being said, none of that is necessary for the Green New Deal as we map it out to succeed. It's just stuff that would be additional improvement uh, to the way we do things. This is Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. 
up a parking lot With a pink hotel, a boutique and a swinging hot spot Don't it always seem to go That you don't know what you've got till it's gone It pay paradise, put up a parking lot Before I get back to my conversation with Professor Hockett, I'd like to take a few minutes to ask you to consider becoming a member of WBAI. We're asking all of our listeners to step up right now by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 516-620-3602 to help keep this show and this station on the air in the wake of this terrible pandemic. Again, the number 516-620-3602 or you can go to our website, give to WBAI.org. And one great way to support WBAI throughout the year while also spreading out your financial commitment so that it's only a small amount taken out of your credit card or bank account each month at $10, $15, $20, whatever you feel comfortable with, is to become a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy. And I am delighted to announce that anyone who signs up to become a BAI buddy in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large right now will receive a free copy of the book that we've been discussing on today's show, Financing the Green New Deal, a Plan of Action and Renewal by my guest, Professor Robert C. Hockett. But whatever level you're able to show your support for this show and the station that brings it to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m., it all helps. The important thing is that you take that step to keep the show coming to you and all of your fellow listeners by calling 516-620-3602 or by going online to give to WBAI.org. If Leonard Lopez at large is part of your daily routine, why not consider stepping up for someone who is just discovering it? You'd be giving them the gift of uh, this hour of conversation, insight, and knowledge that we hope to bring you with each installment of our program. But so please Play your part in keeping this 100% listener-supported free speech radio station on the air by calling 516-620-3602 or by going to our website, give2wbai.org. And again, don't forget to make that contribution in the name of Leonard Lopate at large. And from all of us at the show and station, thank you. And uh, now I'm returning to my guest, Robert C. Hockett who uh, is a lawyer, law professor, policy advocate, holds two positions at Cornell University, the Edward Cornell Professor of Law at Cornell Law School and Professor of Public uh, Affairs. Uh, He's a senior counsel at at the investment firm of Westwood Capital. And as of 2019, he's been advising Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez on the Green New Deal. Uh, So um, his book is called Financing the Green New Deal. A Plan of Action and Renewal, published by Paul Grave McMillan. Um, haven't Joe Biden and Kamala Harris distanced themselves from proposals for a Green New Deal? Yeah, that's, that's a great question, Leonard. Um, so I think that they've... Because it's become kind of a, a dog whistle to bludgeon progressives? Yeah, I mean, that, I think that's right, right? I think it's a great question. I don't think they've distanced themselves at all from the substance. I think they've distanced themselves from the name. Uh, I think the reason for that in turn is that the name itself um, has come to be associated in a kind of Pavlovian way um, with, you know, a a number of myths or just outright lies that were told about it during the, you know, the sort of mass hysteria 
uh, that greeted uh, the Congresswoman's election uh, back in 2018. Um, so, you know, you remember back in early 2019 when we first put out the uh, the actual resolution, then the white paper, <clears throat> and then began talking, you know, doing a lot of media in connection with the Biblical City. A lot of Republican types and other you know conservative types were saying, well, they're going to take away your hamburgers, they're going to take away your ice cream, they're going to prohibit the production of milk, they're going to they're going to take away automobiles, they're going to prohibit flying, we're somehow going to end the, um, uh, again, the sort of airline industry. And none of that, not only did that lack any uh, sort of basis in, in anything that we had said, but much of it was actually directly contrary, was literally contrary to what we were saying. And I think, you know, for, for better or worse, I tend to think for the worse, um, um, the phrase has come to carry those sorts of connotations, right, because the phrase, in effect, was born uh, in the midst of a kind of battle. Um, that's the reason, I think, uh, that Mr. Biden and Ms. Harris are using the phrase build back better. Um, but if you look at the actual substance of what they want to do, and if you look at the actual uh, quantum of expending or expenditure that they want to uh, spend, uh, it's pretty much the Green New Deal in substance, which is great. You know, I I don't mind at all. Indeed, I'm, I've actually, I actually, to tell you the truth, and I've, I've said this to my fellow Green New Dealers, in many ways, I prefer the phrase building back better. I think it's more accurate in a sense of what we're talking about here, because, you know, in effect, we're talking about building back what has been destroyed, right? Again, we've had this 60-year run of steady degradation of our infrastructural base and our industrial base. That all has to be built back. If we build it back, it is almost by definition going to be being built back better. And that in turn means almost by definition, it's going to be being built back greener because new infrastructure is not kerosene lamps and coal-fired plants right. and you know diesel engines and the like. You know, we're just not doing that kind of stuff anymore. When we go state of the art, we just go green automatically. And that's for that reason, again, I kind of I rather like Mr. Biden's update of the name for this effort. Actually, we went in the, the opposite direction when we got rid of trolleys and brought in buses that run on, on petroleum. But uh, that's, that's a whole other matter. Haven't we yeah. heard for years from prominent Americans like Michael Bloomberg and Bill Clinton that government should be run more like a business? Has the American response to the COVID-19 pandemic revealed any weaknesses in partnerships between the public and private sectors? Um, I think it has. I mean, we, there's a sense in which you can, it's almost as though there's been a kind of um, temporary, let's say, uh, blockage of the corpus callosum, let's say, between, if we, if we, if we analogize the public sector I don't know, to, to the, le the right brain and the, and the private sector to the left brain or, or, or vice versa, um, you know, there, there has to be a corpus callosum between them. There has to be, there have to be means of coordinating and cooperating. That's essentially the only way a mixed economy like ours is ever going to work. Now, back in the early 20th century, a lot of the kind of cutting edge progressives had a name for this. They called it corporatism. Uh, and the corporatism of the early 20th century that we associate with Teddy Roosevelt on the one hand, Louis Brandeis on the other, and quite a few other uh, great thinkers of the time who also elided the distinction between law and economics. They were kind of lawyer economists, as I try to be. Um, I sort of understood that what we really want to do is develop mechanisms and means by which you can have regular cooperation between public and private sectors. And in doing that, you need each sector to sort of specialize in doing what it does best. And now, again, when it comes to the public-private divide here, which is another subject, as you know, of the book and how to sort of mediate that, um, you know, the public is best at, again, two things when we're comparing it to the private sector. 
Um, the, the first is coordinating over the nation as a whole, right? There's no private company or industry that can determine whether there are going to be, for example, recharging posts at every parking meter in every city of a kind that has to be in place if electric cars are going to work, right? The electric car manufacturing industry can't put those, you know, can't mandate the, uh, those charging posts presence in every parking meter in every town. Um, and the federal government, or actually all governments, right, the public sector, again, back to that, has that specialty, right? It has that capacity to kind of coordinate and to act in kind of global ways. And by global, in this case, I don't mean the earth. I mean, you know, sort of cross-jurisdictional or trans-jurisdictional ways, right, that no private entity can do, and for good reason, right? If a private entity could do that, we would be feudalists, not um, democratic capitalists, right? So that's the, the, the first point. And so what does the private sector do well? Well, the private sector is pretty good in general at determining comparative costs and benefits of various possible projects that might be engaged in, right? And so the public sector in coordinating and planning a comprehensive national project like the Green New Deal or the Building Back Better or what I call Building Back Better and beyond can benefit immensely from, again, the knowledge input and the data that can be supplied it by the private sector, by parties in the private sector. But I think it's a mistake uh, to think that either one can do this alone, right? The pro but the problem with leaving it to the private sector is there are massive coordination problems and so-called collective action problems that are familiar uh, even to orthodox economists. You don't have to be heterodox to understand this, um, that private sector entities are just not able to surmount. And you can read all about that in the book. Um, by the same token, the public sector uh, is very good at that, at addressing those coordination and collective action problems. That's sort of why it exists. It's why we have a government to solve the collective action problems. You need collective agency. We, the word that we have for collective agents is government. So they're good at that. Um, and, but, but in order to be optimally informed about facts on the ground and thus to be sort of sensitive to and responsive to needs on the ground, they have to be able to hear from the private sector. And by the way, that means not just big business, but also small business and all sorts of even nonprofit enterprises or entities, right? Basically the entirety of the private sector. Um, what about the Federal the Reserve? Should it also be taking a leading role in this? I think so, yeah. Um, so because you brought up Alexander Hamilton uh, and, the, uh, and found parallels between uh, his uh, Bank of the United States. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So I've written about this as, as well, um, both in the book and then more recently, too. Um, one way to think of Hamilton's Bank of the United States was it was sort of a combined central bank and development bank in one. It was both of those things. That's to say it was a little bit like the Fed, and it was a little bit like a national development bank of a kind that we don't have now but need to bring back. Now, here's what I think we have to do with the Fed, and this is actually quite cool. I suspect this might come as something new to a lot of your listeners. Most of your listeners probably know that we have a sort of a Federal Reserve system right, rather than a single Federal Reserve Bank. Uh, and that system comprises, in effect, two tiers. There's the Federal Reserve Board at the top, which is an administrative agency, just like the EPA or the Department of Defense. And then we have this sequence of, or this group of regional Federal Reserve Banks scattered across the country. There's the FRBNY, i.e. Federal Reserve Bank of New York. There's the Federal Reserve Bank of Boston, San Francisco, Atlanta, Cleveland, you name it, right? There are 12 in all. Now, originally, 
the reason we set this thing up in this way back in 1913 was, the theory at least, was that the regional Federal Reserve banks will be really good at helping to finance and to foster the development of new local businesses, startups and the like, in every region of the country. Because it was understood that one one single federal agency in Washington couldn't be adequately sensitive to the needs of small businesses in California or Utah and the small businesses of Boston and so on. So we had these regional Federal Reserve banks that were designed essentially to enable, essentially to provide liquidity support and long-term lending support when necessary to businesses across the country to basically to foster continuous national development, to use that phrase I used before. And then what the Federal Reserve Board in D.C. would do would be to coordinate the actions of these Federal Reserve regional banks to make sure that, again, that they weren't operating across purposes and to make sure that when ag- in aggregate they weren't making the national credit money supply either too great or too little, right? In other words, that they weren't acting in a manner that in aggregate was inflationary or deflationary. And that's the way that system should work even to this day. But here's the problem. We don't use the regional Federal Reserve banks in that way anymore. What we do with the the regional banks is, uh, in the words of my brilliant research assistant, we have them, quote, write papers and stuff. That's Mm -hmm. what we do. I worked at the New York Fed. It's a little different at the New York Fed because the New York Fed has a, a somewhat different operational role from all of the other regional feds. But most of the regional feds are basically just doing a lot of regional economic research. Now, if we were to restore that regional lending and liquidity support function to the regional banks, then those papers that they're producing would actually have some use, right? Currently, they're kind of all dressed up with no place to go. Now, the initiative that I've sort of launched in this connection I call Spread the Fed for, you know, I guess probably obvious reasons. If we spread the Fed in the way that I'm describing, that is going to be a critical part, I think, of making the Green New Deal work, because that's the optimal way of dealing with the industrial policy, at least the optimal way of dealing with a big piece of the industrial policy side of this, um, in addition to helping out a bit with the uh, infrastructural policy piece of this. Robert C. Hockett is my guest on Leonard Lopate at Large today here on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. His book that we're discussing is Financing the Green New Deal, A Plan of Action and Renewal. Hasn't the intergovernmental panel on climate change argued that we must make critical changes by 2030 if we're going to avoid the worst effects of climate change? Uh, at the same time that President Trump contends that the climate will simply get cool again. And Mike Pence talks about climate alarmists trying to sell the bill of goods of, of a Green New Deal. So yeah. how would you address that all of that thinking? Yeah, uh, Eric Trump joked that the Democrats want to ban airplanes, cows and cars. Yeah. See, that, that, that latter point, that's exactly the set of just outright lies that I mentioned a few moments ago, right? This is the stuff that they were saying back in uh, January and February and March and after of 2019, right? There's simply nothing in the Green New Deal, right? I mean, I've frequently been informed, quote unquote, by self-appointed or self-styled conservatives of these aspects of the Green New Deal. And my reply is always the same. Can you please point me to where anything like that is said or implied, right? All we have, all they had to go on, is the resolution and the white paper that I put out in, in tandem with that resolution, and there's nothing about that. Indeed, there's all the contrary to that. So that's the, the first thing to say. Second thing to say, I think, is with response in, in response to your first point about the intergovernmental panel. Yes, it has indeed said this. 
Uh, and that's something that also has to be borne in mind when we ask about the cost, right? Because as any economist will tell you that when you're talking about costs, you have to include what are known as opportunity costs. In, in, the, in the present context, that's sort of another way of saying we have to figure the cost of inaction alongside the costs of action. And the costs of inaction, we're told by the intergovernmental panel, are effectively infinite, right? Because if the planet becomes literally uninhabitable, that's pretty much an infinite cost, right? If, if, we're, if, if complete planetary destruction is the alternative, well, then it seems to me that anything short of planetary destruction is cost effective, right? And then finally, um, on your uh, the second point that you made about, oh gosh, I'm sorry, Leonard, I forgot. There were three points in there. Um, I always throw first, too many in the same question. I'm sorry. No, no, no worries. No worries. I mean, the first one was, what, doesn't the panel say this? And yeah. Oh yeah, then yeah. President Trump contending that oh, yeah. things will just get cool again. Uh, Mike yeah. Pence talks about climate alarmists trying to sell the bill of goods on the Green New Deal. I'm going to go even a little further. We have Larry Kudlow, the director of the U.S. National Economic Council, claiming that a Green New Deal would, quote, destroy the economy. And uh, mm -hmm. we have Mitch McConnell, John Cornyn, and Joni Ernst claiming that a Green New Deal would cost $93 trillion, President Trump rounding that out to $100 trillion. So mm -hmm. is it possible to estimate the cost of doing nothing? Well, first of all, the cost of doing nothing does appear to be infinite, um, in, in, in which case even $100 trillion would be a bargain. But, but, but second of all, these $100 trillion people, dollar people never tell you where those numbers come from. Just, they simply pull that out of their backsides. There's simply no – nobody has ever come up with an estimate of that kind of any sort of responsible you – know, no, no responsible party has ever done that, right? Certainly we've never uh, sort of seen it as necessarily being anything near that amount. Um, and then, you know, finally, on the matter of whether climate change is even happening, what do you say to something like this, right? I mean, Mr. Trump just yesterday put out a tweet apparently thinking that this was damning, saying that if you let, you know, Mr. Biden, you know, Joe Biden will listen to the scientists. Yeah. Apparently thinking that that's damning. Um, that's really weird um, from, from our point of view. I mean, it's almost it's almost a, there, there's sort of no response to that. It, it, at some point. You just realize that you're talking past each other. Some people, and ironically, the scientists, of course, uh, saved him with, with treatment at Walter Reed. Uh, we're pretty much out of time, but yes. I, I have one more question. Don't we really need a global Green New Deal? If the United States refuses to address climate change, can the rest of the world proceed productively without us? I think you're right. I mean, I think there does. We certainly all of us Green New Dealers here in the States think that it has to be a global effort. Right. Um, or at least we think it's much better if it is. Uh, we don't think that it's impossible for other countries to proceed without us and, and be better off if they do. Just like we don't think it's um, impossible for us to be better off doing so, even if some other countries don't. But, you know, ideally, you want everybody to be on board and you want everybody to be coordinating on this. So that, again, you don't have people operating or countries operating at cross purposes any more than you have industries here at home operating at cross purposes. So and, and again, there's there's a, there's a there's a kind of a structure in place, a, a negotiating structure or a deliberation structure in place for countries to come together and coordinate here. But as, as we know, right, one thing that's sort of a hallmark of the current administration is it's not interested uh, in being a kind of fellow global citizen, so to speak, with other countries. Pulled us, pulled us out of the Paris Accord. 
Yeah. It, well, there's that. Yeah. And then even more broadly, right out of the WHO, out of every yeah. international structure through which we coordinate. And I don't mean in saying this to suggest that everything has always been all sweetness and light in every international organization. But I do mean to say that, you know, actually being a responsible participant in, in global fora for multinational collaboration is kind of a good idea. It might be one reason we haven't had another world war since establishing those institutions after the Second World War and making significant investments in them. So, you know, and that doesn't, again, doesn't mean rolling over and playing dead or, or sort of following every edict that's issued by any member of any global institution, but it does mean staying at the table and arguing your positions and trying to convince other countries of them if they don't agree with you. Um, and it does mean at least making a good faith effort to sort of appear to be uh, a fellow global citizen, so to speak, right? Instead of just saying, you know, up yours, we're just doing whatever the hell we want as though you didn't exist. We've been discussing Robert C. Hockett's book, Financing the Green New Deal, A Plan of Action and Renewal, published by Paul Gravick and Macmillan. Thank you so much for being on our show today. It's been fascinating. Oh, thank you so much, Leonard, again. Been a great fan for well over a decade, and it's a total honor to be on here with you. Happy to chat anytime. And unfortunately, that brings us to the end of our show. Special thanks to segment producer Hugh Sansom for preparing today's interview. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more of our one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also available as a podcast on iTunes or anywhere else you get your podcasts. And you can also visit our website, LeonardLopateAtLarge.com, where you'll find links to all of our past shows. And if you would like to comment on any of our programs or just want to say hello, you can send me an email at leonardlopate at wbai.org. I'm sure that you've heard by now that WBAI has been put in a very difficult position because of the pandemic. So if you value the kind of informative, in-depth interviews we bring you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m., please go online right now to give to wbai.org or make a call to 516-620-3602 to help keep community radio alive in New York and throughout the tri-state region. And, and one great way to support WBAI without having to lay out a lot of money at one time is to become a BAI buddy. There are listeners who contribute $10 or more each month to keep the station running and to show their support for what we do on this show. And as I mentioned at the half, if you become a BAI buddy in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large during today's show, you'll receive a free copy of the book we've been discussing, Financing the Green New Deal, A Plan of Action and Renewal by my guest, Professor Robert C. Hockett. But whatever level you're comfortable donating at, the important thing is that you step up right now to show your support so we continue to bring you these long form interviews on topics we hope are of interest to you. And please make that contribution in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large. Big thanks to everyone who's already made a tax deductible contribution um, because we are 100% reliant on the generosity of listeners like you. We hope that you'll tune in tomorrow when Pulitzer Prize winning historian and presidential biographer John Meacham will discuss his new podcast, It Was Said, that takes a look at some of America's greatest speeches. We'll see you then.